Well, good evening. Now, I know since we started the studies in First and Second Chronicles, there have been some challenging portions of Scripture to go through, including lists of names, genealogies, and other such things. Over the last several weeks, we've been going through a number of chapters, uh, and it's been a lot of reading on my part, <laughs> but uh, it's also gotten us through the reign of Solomon. There was a lot written about him. And now we find ourselves in, in to, be, to be frank, my favorite portion of Second Chronicles, because it now begins to break down the different kings and the reigns of the kings of Judah. And so the studies will more than likely, for the most part, be one king each night. A couple of times we might do two. Uh, tonight we'll be looking at Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But as we do that, it allows me to really focus in on the life of one individual and really kind of get into what the scriptures say about that individual. And we'll learn various lessons as we go through the scriptures. This evening we're going to look at chapters 10 and 11. We're not going to look at all of Rehoboam's life because we'll save a little for next week uh, and then we'll talk about his son Abijah. But this evening now we find ourselves discussing, studying Rehoboam's reign as king of Judah. Before we do that, let's open the word of prayer. Oh Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that you are so good to us. We thank you for the time of worship that we had and, and continue to have here at Calvary Chapel as you meet our needs in so many wonderful ways. We don't take it for granted that you meet our needs as we study your word, that you meet our needs through fellowship and through service, and you meet our needs as we desire to praise and worship you. We don't just come here and take it for granted that we can do those things freely together as a family to worship you. Lord, as we continue to study your word this evening, just take your word and apply it to our hearts. Help us to understand what you would speak to our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at verses 1 through 4 in 2 Chronicles chapter 10. We read there that Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. And when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and all Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us. But now, lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Well, Rehoboam here is seeking to establish his reign over all Israel. It wasn't a given that a new king would have the hearts of all of the tribes of Israel. When Saul first became king, all of the tribes of Israel came and supported him. Uh, then, of course, David came on the scene, and he was from the tribe of Judah, Ultimately, after Saul's death, there was a civil war, and that lasted about seven years. And David was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, which included the territorial areas of Judah, Benjamin, and Simeon. And then you had the northern tribes that were loyal to Saul's son Ishboeth for a while until he died. And then ultimately, the kingdom came together, and David was king over all Israel for about 33 years. Because he was such a successful king, he was able to pass the entire kingdom on to his son Solomon. But there was no guarantee that Solomon would be able to do the same. So Rehoboam has now become king. Solomon has passed on. And Rehoboam traveled to Shechem in the north to address all of the Israelites. This is an open area where they could gather all of the people of Israel, all the important leaders of the tribes and the clans. 
The Israelites had gathered there in order to negotiate with the king. There was a negotiation involved. You know, it's interesting, when we look at our world today, even when someone is elected in a democracy, there is a period of transition where that person has to create a government. And they have to work sometimes with opposite parties or opposing parties, especially if you have a parliamentary system, such as they have in Israel or the United Kingdom. A government has to be formed and deals are struck and, and uh, opportunities are given and, and, and all of the opportunities that people are looking for come together and, and they sort of make a decision to work together. Everyone gets a little of what they want. And so parliamentary systems work that way. In our country, it's a little different. We do have a number of political parties, but two major parties. And unfortunately, as of late, what's happened when one party wins, even by a hair, even by a thread, uh, that party assumes they have this overwhelming majority. And so we've seen in our nation what happens when one party refuses to work with the other. And I say it's on both sides. It's certainly true of both major political parties that one party wins and there doesn't seem to be any goodwill or any desire to work together. So we have what we've had in our country the last couple of decades, uh, stalemate, uh, gridlock, and very little getting done, and all those politicians divided up into two camps in their opposing corners, and guess what happens? They win, we lose. So I'm hoping that'll change at some point, but that's in God's hands. The thing that happens when people get together to create some type of a leadership team, such as even a, a corporate takeover, when leaders come together, when uh, the stakeholders get together, there has to be a degree of give and take. Otherwise, things fracture. Schisms are created, and problems are the result. We're going to see, in the case of Rehoboam, that's exactly what happened. So all of the Israelites had traveled there to negotiate with the king. Just because he's king doesn't mean they have to be loyal to him as king. So this was the place where the Lord had first appeared to Abraham, if you remember, in Genesis 12, a place called Shechem. It was centrally located about midway between Dan and Beersheba, which is Dan is the northernmost part of Israel, Beersheba the southernmost part. So it made sense, gets everyone together in a central location. And then we're introduced to an individual you're probably familiar with, from First Kings, specifically chapter 11. His name is Jeroboam. He was an Ephraimite, and he returned from his exile in Egypt. What we learn from First Kings, we haven't talked much about it here in Second Chronicles, is that Jeroboam was a rebellious servant of Solomon. The Lord actually raised him up to deal with Solomon because Solomon's heart was far from the Lord. So God used some opposition to try to bring Solomon to a place of repentance. But Jeroboam had been put in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. So that would be Ephraim, Manasseh. He was a high-ranking, influential leader. But Ahijah the prophet had declared that Jeroboam would receive the kingdom of Israel. That is, the northern kingdoms that were currently aligned and serving Solomon. Well, the kingdom of Israel included the ten twelves. Uh, excuse me, the ten of the twelve tribes of Israel. And David's descendants would continue to reign over the kingdom of Judah, which I've already mentioned was the southern kingdom. But the kingdom of Israel would be taken away because of Solomon's disobedience. So Solomon was disobedient to the Lord for many years, probably as many as 20, where he literally lived in sin until he finally realized that uh, to fear God and keep his commandments was the whole duty of man. But before that happened, he disobeyed, and God raised up 
rivals and enemies, one of them Jeroboam. But Jeroboam had fled to Egypt after Solomon tried to have him killed. And so he had been living in exile. In fact, Pharaoh Shishak had provided Jeroboam with political asylum until Solomon's death. But now that Solomon has died, there's a transition in place. He reappears on the scene in order to negotiate some degree of power sharing or relief from taxation with Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. The Israelites looked to Jeroboam, this man who had been in exile. Call him the opposition leader, if you like. They looked to Jeroboam to represent their needs before an oppressive regime. Now, that does happen when you have a regime that's oppressive, overtaxing the people. The opposition party generally, generally will stand up and say that therefore reducing taxation on the people. And that's a popular message. Sometimes people say it, they don't necessarily mean it, as we've seen in the past. But the Israelites looked at Jeroboam. And Israel had a history of division between the rival tribes, as I've mentioned already, of Judah and Ephraim. Now, there was a reason for this, because those two tribes were leadership tribes. Judah was the largest tribe and the leading tribe in the wilderness, and Ephraim was descended from Joseph, who you'll remember was the leading tribe through inheritance. He was the one who was the heir to Jacob. So he was considered to be the heir of Jacob, therefore the leading tribe But God had said that he would raise up David from the tribe of Judah, who was also a very powerful tribe. And, of course, they became the kingly tribe. So you have these two rival tribes. Uh, Joshua, of course, you'll remember, who led the children of Israel into the promised land. He was descended from the tribe of Ephraim. So Ephraim had a very strong leadership role in Israel for many years. Ephraim had also twice demanded tribal preference. Uh, they actually twice in the book of Judges in chapter 8 and in chapter 12 stood up and say, hey, we deserve to be in charge. And their reason for that is because they were descended from Joseph. Now, they were united under Saul, but they were divided again after his death. And they were reunited under David, but only after, as I've mentioned, a seven-year civil war. So now they're demanding a decrease in forced labor and taxation for their loyalty to Rehoboam. They are negotiating. All of the tribes of Israel were willing to support the king, King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And Jeroboam, the Ephraimite, Solomon's greatest rival, who he tried to kill, was willing to support Rehoboam, the king. This should have been able to have worked out. But as we've seen all too many times, egos get in the way of compromise. Egos get in the way of collaboration They get in the way of people working together and creating compromise. And that's exactly what happened here. In fact, we read in verses 5 through 11, Rehoboam answered, Come back to me in three days. So the people went away. And then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. Well, they replied, if you will be kind to these people and please them, and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice of the elders, the advice the elders gave him, and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? 
Well, the young men who had grown up with him replied, Tell the people who have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Now, the scorpions are probably a reference to a multi-tailed lash with barbed hooks. So this isn't exactly what you would consider to be a conciliatory gesture. Sometimes people double down because of ego, because of greed, and because of power. That's what Rehoboam received as advice from those younger counselors. Now, he took three days to consider their demands, Consulting the most experienced counselors, they encouraged him to serve the people. And it was such good advice. Why couldn't he follow it? Well, these were some of the men that had served his father Solomon. They were experienced. They were wise. And these elders endorsed what we call the biblical model of servant leadership. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The biblical model of leadership is that of leaders serving the people. Okay? That is the way church leadership is supposed to be. Really, that's the way our national leadership is supposed to be. Sad that we don't see that very often. It's about us. We the people. They work for us. It's supposed to be in our nation about our leaders serving the people. Sadly, we see all too often they serve their pocketbooks with corruption and backroom deals. And as a result, it's really destroying our culture. It's really destroying our nation. Well, the truth here is that that was good advice that Rehoboam received from his father's counselors. But then he went and he didn't like that advice because basically it meant that he was going to have less resources. He was going to have to lower taxes. That meant they would have less money. He was going to use less forced labor, which meant that he would have less people to work for him for free. So this wasn't his idea of a good deal. So he consulted his inexperienced friends who encouraged him to oppress the people. Now, these were the men that had served him throughout his youth. And if there's one thing we know about younger men, maybe younger women as well, but certainly younger men, is they're not always as wise as the older men. One thing I can tell you, because I have been both a younger man and an older man, one thing I can tell you is that when you're young, you really don't know a lot. You think, the problem is you think you know a lot. And you have limited experience. There are wise, younger people, but generally you just don't have the same level of experience that someone who's been around for a little longer has. And how I wish I had, the, had, had the experience that I have now when I was younger in making some of the decisions that I made. And then, of course, we look back and say, well, I wish... I would have the energy that I had when I was young. But you know something? I am glad to give up some of that youth and vigor for the experience and wisdom that comes with time. And that was a problem for Rehoboam. These young men endorsed the world model of tyrannical leadership. We see it all the time. You're not serving the people. You believe that the people are there to serve you. And this was really a challenge because now the kingdom is going to be fractured because of these egos and because of this terrible advice given to Rehoboam. Now, when I mentioned those scorpions, he's basically saying, you know, 
he's using uh, an idiom or some type of a phrase or metaphor to make the point when he mentions the scorpions. You know, my father uh, scourged you with whips, speaking to those who were in the forced labor, and I will scourge, scourge you with scorpions. He's saying, like, I'm going to make it so much worse than you had it just because you asked. And that's a really bad position to take. So these particularly painful hooks called scorpions were used to punish rebellious slaves. So what is he saying in metaphor? He's saying, you rebel against me? Oh, no, you don't. I'm going to make it even worse for you. Even if he wasn't actually going to scourge them, the point is he's going to treat them as rebels. He viewed their negotiation with him as usurping his authority. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to work with somebody uh, who's your boss or a manager, and, you know, it was time for your performance appraisal, and maybe you tried to negotiate a raise or a promotion of some sort, and most good managers, you won't have to negotiate with them. They'll, they'll offer that to you before you, you get to that point. But there are some business owners and managers who will never bring that up uh, because they're threatened by it, and they don't want to pay you more. And so you have to beg for a raise. You have to beg for a promotion. And it really, it, it kind of feels awful, doesn't it, when you have to ask to be rewarded for your hard work? But imagine if you went to your boss and you said, hey, listen, you know, I've been here 12 years, and I've really had my eye on being in a management position. I'd like to work toward that. Please let me know what it is I can do. And their response is something like, oh, you want to be a manager? Not only are you not going to be a manager, I'm demoting you and paying you 10% less. Imagine something like that, you know? I mean, that's the kind of stuff that really difficult people do, and specifically people with egos. And when you try to negotiate with someone like that, and they view your negotiation as an usurpation of their authority, what are you going to do? This sometimes happens in ministry, you know? I, I can't, can't imagine why. I mean, we're supposed to be serving one another. But sometimes certain leaders will view someone within a ministry who wants to take on more responsibility as a threat to their position, which is so ridiculous I can't even begin to comment on it. But it does happen. People become little kings and little queens and, oh, this is my ministry and you have to ask me for permission before you do this. You know that? I got to say, I'm, I'm in an enviable position because as the pastor of this church, you know, I'm in the, the top leadership position. So it's not going to happen on my watch. If I see something like that, that person is gone from their leadership position because you cannot tolerate that type of behavior and expect people to serve one another. So all of our leaders, and I say this without exception, all of our leaders are servants. So we don't have those kind of problems here. But if we did, it would be a reflection on my poor leadership for putting someone like that in a position of leadership and, or not removing them when they acted badly. Are you with me? So here's the problem. He's going to follow this terrible advice. And in fact, we see in verses 12 through 15, Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. As the king had said, come back to me in three days. And the king answered them harshly, rejecting the advice of the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. <laughs> so the king did not listen to the people. 
For this turn of events was from God. Now that's very interesting. To fulfill the word the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. Now you'd have to read about that in other scriptures like 1 Kings. But in essence, as I've mentioned already, Ahijah the prophet had declared that because of Solomon's sin, the kingdom would be taken away from his son Rehoboam. So this was God's will. But that's not to excuse Rehoboam's behavior. See, I think we make a mistake of thinking like, for example, they sometimes say this. People sometimes say this with Judas. Well, Judas had no choice because God had ordained that Judas was going to betray Jesus. But is that really what happened? Is it more likely that God knew that Judas would betray Jesus and simply ordained it as the truth because he knew what would happen? No one made Judas do what Judas did. No one. He chose to do that. And this is the thing about God's will. God's will takes into consideration our choices. So God's perfect will allows for us to make choices, and God weaves his will on the basis of and including our choices. But he's still sovereign, and yet you can make your own choices. So God said this would happen because he knew it would happen, and it was God's judgment against Rehoboam, only because God knew what Rehoboam would do. But Rehoboam had a choice. He certainly had every opportunity to do the right thing. He didn't do it, but God knew he wouldn't do it. But don't blame God. Oh, poor Rehoboam. He had no choice but to disobey God. No. When people make a decision to disobey God or to do something unwise, it's because they made that decision. And and listen, some people feel that God can't be sovereign unless man isn't. But here's the truth. There's the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of man. One is greater than the other, but you and I, we have free will. You get to make decisions that affect your will in a positive or negative way, and you will bear out in your life the truth of God's word based on the decisions you make. If you obey God, you're blessed. If you disobey God, well, you may not necessarily be cursed, but Be sure of this. Your sin will find you out. You will experience the consequences of disobedience. It could be just not being blessed, or it could really bring severe consequences into your life because of your choices. So Rehoboam, okay, yes, God had ordained that this should happen, but Rehoboam made his choice. I want you to understand that. He rejected the wise counsel of his elders in in favor of the foolish counsel of his peers, I'm going to give you a little advice from a guy who's 57. Get your advice from people who are a little older than you, if you can. A little bit more experienced than you are. And it probably isn't always an age thing, but it's definitely an experience thing. If you look to people who are kind of on your level or your peers or even younger, what's going to happen you're, going, you're not going to avail yourself of the experience that God has provided in those elders in your life. It's one of the reasons why when we see church leadership, we see elders leading the church. Generally, they're older. And, and listen, I'm not against younger people being involved in ministry. I got involved in, in ministry in my 20s, but I, I wasn't a senior pastor until I was almost 40. And, and that's a good thing. Believe me, that's a good thing. And so I think... We have to respect and appreciate the counsel of our elders. One of the things that Pastor Sal did very nicely at our Good Friday service is featured 
some of the older members of our congregation, those with some experience, to share their meditations on the cross, their thoughts concerning Jesus' death. And I'm sure we all benefited that evening from the experience of someone who's a little older than most of us. So I want to encourage you. That little bit of advice, that's free of charge. Take it. Use it. I hope you will. At least, at least ask the opinion of your elders before you make some very important decisions in your life. I'm not talking about whether to get the pastrami or the corned beef. I'm talking about a decision that affects your life in great and hopefully wonderful ways. Okay? So, one of the things he did is he, he rejected those elders' counsel. Uh, his pride allowed him to reject wisdom. The only thing that will cause you to reject wisdom is pride. And I'm going to give you a couple of scriptures. I'll read them for you. Uh, they're from Proverbs, of course, because if you, if you lack wisdom, James says, ask of God, he'll give to you without measure, liberally, uh, as much as you need, basically. But if you lack wisdom, I'm going to add to that, read the book of Proverbs. You know, there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. Some people have suggested if you read one a day in a month, you'll be through the book, and you'll have gained years of wisdom. Okay, so let's look at just a couple of these verses. Uh, Proverbs eleven twelve says this. If I got this right, one of the other things that happens when you get older is you can't see as well. Uh, it's eleven two actually. Uh, when pride comes, eleven two, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. And then, uh, let's see, we have 13.10 in the book of Proverbs. Pride only breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. How about this one? One more. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Those words couldn't have been more true in the life of Rehoboam at this time. So his actions brought about the fulfillment of the word of the Lord through Ahijah, mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 29 through 39. But as a consequence of his bad decisions, Israel rebelled against Rehoboam, king of Judah, after he rejected their demands. Let's read verse 16. Actually, I don't think we read verse... Yes, we did read verse 15. Verse 16, and we'll read through uh, chapter 11, verse 4. When all Israel, in verse 16 of chapter 10, when all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? Jesse was David's father. To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. So all the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, that is in the south, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor. But the Israelites stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. See, he tried to exert his authority to no avail. So Israel had been in, has been, it says, the writer says, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Uh, the kingdom split never to, to reconstitute, really never to come together again. Well, in verse 1 of chapter 11, when Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered the house of Judah and Benjamin, 
180,000 fighting men to make war against Israel and to regain the kingdom for Rehoboam. What do you think was driving that? A little ego, a little pride, a little, little bruised ego for being chased out and having his uh, head of forced labor stoned to death? Well, notice this. God gets involved. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the Israelites in Judah and Benjamin, this is what the Lord says, do not go up to fight against your brothers. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. So they obeyed the words of the Lord and turned back from marching against Jeroboam. It's a good thing God got involved, right? Civil war is never um, an easy thing to endure. We experienced first the American Revolution, which was akin to a civil war, and then we experienced the Civil War in the 1800s, 1860s. And those times in our nation's history are celebrated for various reasons, but you can't look at the bigger picture and say that they were easy times. Certainly the American Revolution was a difficult time, and the Civil War was an extremely difficult time. Lots of people died. Brothers fought against brothers, countrymen against countrymen. Lots of people died. In fact, many, many people died the result of being injured, not just killed on the battlefield, but wounded and then died later of sepsis. It was just an absolute horrible, horrible war. And uh, if you've studied any of it, if you've been out to Gettysburg or to any of the battlefields, you've learned enough to know that it wasn't a good thing. Maybe a necessary thing, but not a good thing. Let's be honest. Never a good thing. War, I don't think war is ever a good thing. Really, I... I have to say that, you know, I understand that certain wars may have to be fought at times. I look at World War II, but the more I study even World War II, I realize so many egos got involved, and a lot of people died because of some of the leaders' egos and generals and admirals. War is just never a good thing. I used to think differently about this. Uh, You know, our culture has a tendency to glamorize war and, and look at it and make it uh, seem like a, a, a thing. We have these movies and, it, you know, we feel good about it. And listen, we see all too often, like what's going on in Europe right now, what's going on throughout the world at all times, that war is so ugly and terrible. And who suffers? Women and children, innocents, all people. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that war is ever a good thing. I've, I've come to the conclusion that it may at times be a, a an action or reaction of last resort, but it's never something we should celebrate, never something that I could ever describe as good. Never. But a civil war especially. A civil war is particularly heinous because what it does to the culture and to the nation that's involved in it. We've seen it. How about Syria? I mean, that nation's been destroyed through that civil war. And there are many other places on earth, of course. I think of, uh, I think it's uh, you, is it Rwanda? Yeah, I think it's Rwanda where you have the Hutus, Hutus and the Tutsis. These people just genocide, killing each other. And, and, and uh, the more you learn about mankind, the, the more you say with John at the end of the book of Revelation, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But here's what we do know. Israel rebelled. And so the ten northern tribes separated themselves from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Now, we'll see in a little bit that that didn't mean that all the people within Judah or all the people in the northern tribes allied with either side. It's just the territory, the land, the tribal territories of Judah and Benjamin, which included Simeon and many of the Levite territories, separated from the territory of the northern tribes. 
you might say 10 northern tribes. But anyway, these northern tribes separated themselves. And Rehoboam, he tried to force the Israelites to submit to forced labor and taxation. That's why they sent Adoniram up there, thinking they could just muscle their way and get these people to buckle under their authority. So he sends out Adoniram, who had served as David and Solomon's labor secretary, obviously an older man. His foolishness, that is Rehoboam's foolishness, caused this faithful and innocent man his life. And that's so often what happens when the egos of leaders persist in doing foolish things. Innocent lives are lost. This man, Rehoboam, this king, barely escaped to Jerusalem with his own life, so obviously they were attacked, ambushed, whatever you want to call it. Rehoboam's actions caused the kingdom of Israel to be permanently divided into Judah and Israel. And so going forward now from this point, we'll talk about the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah And it is, or refers to, two separate kingdoms. And we'll be in 2 Chronicles, not so in in 1 and 2 Kings, but in 2 Chronicles we'll be looking pretty much totally only at the kings of Judah. Because it's the chronicles of the kings of Judah. All right, so David's descendants continued to reign over the kingdom of Judah. And the kingdom of Israel, though, was taken away, as we've said, because of Solomon's disobedience. This, this was the consequence of his sin. Well, the Israelites made Jeroboam king over all Israel. Now, this we learn in 1 Kings chapter 12. It's not really mentioned here, but just to give you a little uh, subtext to what's going on. The Israelites made Jeroboam king over all Israel in defiance of Rehoboam, king of Judah. <clears throat> Rehoboam should have been a mighty king, and Jeroboam, his loyal subject. But because of Rehoboam's pride, that's not how it played out. Rehoboam, whose name means, interestingly enough, or maybe ironically, Rehoboam means he who sets the people at liberty. But that's actually the opposite of who he was. And Jeroboam means he that opposes the people. And it's interesting because he really sort of supported the people. That's how he came to power. So it's interesting that their names really were kind of the opposite of their character. But the Israelites chose to submit to an authority that listened and understood their needs. Now, isn't that something? Listening and understanding the needs of the people. Not to become overly political, but I think it's fair to say that the current administration and Congress and many states are doing anything but listening and understanding the needs of the people. Would you agree? How's inflation treating you? The other day I went to Costco and I couldn't believe how much I spent. I thank God that God has provided the resources to pay it, but gas, my goodness. The other day I was coming up the parkway, and I only put $10 in because the gas price was so high. You know, I waited till I got to Costco to fill up cheap. But these are the consequences of leadership that doesn't care about our needs and doesn't listen to our concerns. And that's what we're experiencing in our nation today, hopefully for not much longer. Can I hear an Amen. I hope, I hope soon things will turn around, but I think it's going to take a change of leadership in order for that to happen. We'll see what happens in the fall. <clears throat> but here's what I do know. The Israelites chose to submit to Jeroboam because he was an authority that listened and understood their needs. Now, Rehoboam was prepared to fight a civil war to reunite the kingdom under his rule. And he wanted to force the people to submit to him against their will. 
You might call that a mandate. Forcing people to submit to leadership against their will. We know something about mandates, don't we? Wouldn't it be nice? Just, just back up a minute. Imagine we go back two years and imagine if the leadership in our nation said, listen, here's our counsel. Here's our advice. It may change. You decide to do what you think is best for you. Oh, no, that couldn't happen. We had to live through mandates that made no sense whatsoever for the most part. So you see what happens. You see what it does to a nation, right? See how it's really destroyed us as a people. Maybe that was the intention. I don't know. I just know this. I don't like mandates any more than you do. They didn't either. See, he was willing to sacrifice the people in order to control the people. And I think that's what we've experienced here in our country. Well, the Lord spoke through this prophet, Shemaiah, to Rehoboam and the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. God got involved. He warned them not to fight against their brothers, the Israelites. He had orchestrated the events that brought about the division of the kingdom of Israel in accordance with his will as judgment for Solomon's sin. And Rehoboam and the kingdom of Judah fortunately obeyed the word of the Lord through Shemaiah. Had they not, they would have really caused all kinds of destruction to the nation at that time. Okay, well now, we continue. The rest of the scripture that deals with Rehoboam's reign, we're just going to look at a little of it. Chapters 11 and then actually into chapter 12, which we're not going to get into tonight, describe what happened after that altercation between the tribes of Israel and Judah. And we read in verses 5 through 12. Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem and built up towns for defense in Judah, Bethlehem, Etem, Tekoa, Bethzer, Soko, Adullam, Gath, Marashah, Ziph, Adoraim, Lachish, Ezekah, Zorah, Ajalon, and Hebron. Now these are all the uh, villages and cities along the border with the northern kingdom. These were fortified cities in Judah and Benjamin, and he strengthened their defenses and put commanders in them and supplies of food, olive oil, and wine put shields and spears in all the cities, and made them very strong, so Judah and Benjamin were his. So you see, he secured his reign over the territory that he still had. And to do that, he fortified the towns along Judah's northern border with Israel. Uh, Sort of a a militarized area, a militarized zone. And then we learn, in verses 13 through 17... We learn that the priests and the Levites from all their districts throughout Israel, that is north and south, sided with him, that is with Rehoboam. The Levites even abandoned their pasture lands and property and came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them as priests of the Lord. And he appointed his own priests, that is Jeroboam, for the high places and for the goat and calf idols he had made. Those from every tribe of Israel who set their hearts on seeking the Lord, the God of Israel, followed the Levites to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to the Lord, the God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, son of Solomon, three years, walking in the ways of David and Solomon during this time. So you see, one of the good things that happened is Rehoboam chose to walk according to the word of God. So immediately... He was supported by all those that wanted to walk after the Lord, including the other tribesmen, those other tribes in the north who didn't want to be idolaters, and the Levites 
who, of course, were serving the Lord in the temple and throughout the nation. What ultimately happened, you can read about this in 1 Kings, Jeroboam took control and he said, I'm not having all of our people go down to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. That's not in our territory. So what we're going to do is we're going to create areas of worship. And Dan and Bethel, had these golden calves, of all things, and had people worship the Lord that way. So he created his own religion. And of course, the priests would have none of it, so he created his own priesthood. And he ultimately became a very wicked man. And again, we're not talking about Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel. We're talking about the southern kingdom of Judah. But just so that you know, that's how it went down. And as a result, those that were faithful to the Lord, they all came south into the kingdom of Judah and strengthened the nation. So Rehoboam walked in the ways of David and Solomon for the first three years of his reign. He maintained his rule over the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And the priests and the Levites from Israel sided with him against Jeroboam. They were forced at this time to abandon Israel and move south to Judah, as we've said. Now, those faithful Israelites that served the Lord supported him as well. So suddenly now, Judah, while while much smaller in territory, still has the capital city of Jerusalem. Uh, They still have a very strong army. They could have probably attacked Jeroboam and the northern kingdom of Israel If God hadn't gotten involved, they probably could have attacked and won that conflict. But God didn't want that. God had a plan, and this was his plan. And so they submitted to his plan. But the kingdom of Judah now has become very strong, much stronger than it it perhaps even was. And it's consolidated in these these smaller tribes or the smaller territory. But there's more people and everyone serving the Lord. So sometimes sometimes less is more. Sometimes when, when things sort of shrink down, they become better. Have you ever noticed that? I've always found that smaller restaurants generally serve better food. (laughs) You know, it's just that's the way it goes. Sometimes less is truly more. And I think what was happening here is God took away that northern kingdom and it attracted all the people who weren't interested in serving the Lord anyway. So you can see God sort of working even through that and that it sort of separated the wheat from the chaff. It allowed those people who really wanted to serve God to stay in Judah and those that didn't to leave. I'm going to tell you something. I saw that in the church at large, not so much in our church, but in the church at large over the last two years. What this COVID pandemic did was sort of separate the wheat from the chaff. A lot of churches became smaller, some closed, and some people stopped serving the Lord altogether or stopped going to church for whatever reason, many reasons, I suppose. But a lot of the churches that were still faithful to the Lord, like this church, grew and were strengthened. And we certainly have experienced that here at Calvary Chapel, and I'm grateful for that. But that's a consequence of us being faithful to serve the Lord. All right? So it's just something to think about. Sometimes, sometimes you know, less is more, and sometimes you just, just being faithful, you know, God does his work in this way. And I could see in, in northern Israel, there was never a good king in northern Israel, in the kingdom of Israel. Jeroboam was really a bad guy, not such a good guy, certainly an idolater, a wicked guy. And every single king that came after him, there were several dynasties, but was wicked, some some worse than the next. You know, they were worse than the last, I mean. The next was worse than the last. That, That should tell us everything we need to know. This was God's doing, as we have already learned. So, we also learn a little bit more about Rehoboam, and then, as I said, we'll stop And we'll pick it up next week and and learn a little bit more about Rehoboam's reign and finally his death uh, when we come together next Wednesday. But for now, let's read. Rehoboam married Mahalath, 
who was the daughter of David's son, Jeremoth, and of Abihel, the daughter of Jesse's son, Eliab. So he's marrying within his family. She bore him sons, Jehush, Shemariah, Zaham. Then he married Maka, daughter of Absalom, who bore him Abijah, Atai, Ziza, and Shilamith. And Rehoboam loved Maka, daughter of Absalom, more than any of his other wives and concubines. In all, he had 18 wives and 60 concubines, 28 sons and 60 daughters. While Rehoboam appointed Abijah, son of Maka, to be the chief prince among his brothers in order to make him king. So he's his successor. He acted wisely, dispersing some of his sons throughout the districts of Judah and Benjamin and to all the fortified cities. He gave them abundant provisions and took many wives for them. So this guy is building up his dynasty through marriage. And this was very common among kings. In fact, you'll probably remember David had many wives, but then Solomon took it to the extreme because he made so many treaties. He had a thousand, including his wives and concubines, he had a thousand wives. So that goes to show you how many treaties he had. It really was very much a political move. But Rehoboam is following in his footsteps, as we've just learned. He married 18 wives, 60 concubines, and had 28 sons and 60 daughters. Uh, we're told that he married his cousin, Mahaloth, who was the granddaughter of David. Now, Rehoboam is the grandson of David. So you can see they're marrying cousins, second cousins, whatever. And he married his cousin, Maka, the granddaughter of David, and the daughter of Absalom, who, of course, was David's son, who, who was killed by Joab. But he also appointed Abijah, his eldest son, the son of Maka, as heir to the throne of Judah. And so that sets up the next king we'll talk about next week. And he did something wise. He wisely enlisted his sons to assist in ruling the kingdom. Now, this is one thing you have to say about Rehoboam. He made some bad decisions, but one good decision he made is he didn't try to do it alone. And I think a person of ego oftentimes finds it difficult to delegate authority, to entrust others with responsibility. Well, it's fair to say that he trusted his own flesh and blood, his children, and he looked to get them involved right away in ruling the kingdom. And that's one good thing we have to say about him. When we come together uh, next week, we'll finish looking at the reign of Rehoboam and then look at the reign of Abijah, who we just mentioned uh, in chapter 13. Lots of practical lessons from the life and the reign of Rehoboam, king of Judah. One of the most important things, I think, is to learn to listen. To learn to listen and take advice. Take good advice from people who can be trusted. And so I pray that you apply that to your heart and God gives you the wisdom to know when to listen and when not to make certain decisions. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom we've received this evening through this teaching. Pray that we would apply it to our hearts. We pray that you would give us the understanding we need to follow after you and to be blessed for making good decisions. Lord, may we make those decisions in accordance with your will. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.